Welcome to Genesis. If uh, you're here for the first time or if you came last week and the doors were locked, I apologize. Uh, we'll be open uh, usually on Sundays. Um, a big thing happening right now uh, in our community is something called life groups. And uh, we've long thought of ourselves in terms of Genesis as a larger community that uh, is committed to also being a small community. So a large community made up of a lot of smaller communities, and those small communities are just called life groups. And what we do with life groups is uh, it's small communities, about 10 people uh, gathering for dinner, uh, gathering for study of God's word, for encouragement, uh, for praying together, for serving one another, and just building relationships with other people. And we do them on what's called a trimester system. So uh, three times a year, we mix up the different life groups. And our fall trimester is just starting actually this coming week. And so if you've not yet signed up, there's about 40-ish, 45 people signed up for life groups uh, so far, uh, which is good. But our goal has always been to have 100%. So if this is your church, if this is your home, if this is your community, we really want you to be engaged because we believe in life groups. Uh, genuine transformation starts to take place. We begin to grow and we begin to mature, which is a good thing. Um, so before you leave today, at the back table or kind of the side table there, sign say, uh, hangs that says life groups, bunch of computers because we have to, we do everything online where you can register for a life group, uh, but it starts this week. So if you're not in one, uh, I challenge you, encourage you uh, uh, to get in a life group. We've got a couple different co-ed groups. Uh, we've got uh, some men's group and some women's group meeting all throughout the week. So that's happening starting uh, this coming week. Um, something that our church uh, has started uh, actually last year, the summer of 2009, we did a series called I Love the Church, and it was going to be uh, our church membership series. Uh, for those who really wanted to say, you know, this is my home, I'm committed to this community of people and being on mission, uh, but we never finished uh, the series itself, and so we redid it again uh, this past summer, um, and today, what I would like to do is, uh, the past uh, about two months, uh, people have gone through the series. We've got a manual called the I Love the Church Manual, uh, which walks through who we are as a church, kind of what we believe and why we believe it. Um, so people have, have gone through that and, and studied and read that, uh, either attended or came to all of the I Love the Church messages. Um, and over the last two months, myself and some other folks in leadership have been going through just membership interviews, getting to hear testimonies of people's faith, finding out how we as leaders can be committed to be praying for, uh, praying for people uh, and just walking through what we're doing at Genesis and how they can be on board with that. So we have about 40 people who have completed and gone through the membership series. And there's no way we're all going to fit up here, but I wanted to invite you if you have, which I realize can be about half the room, um, but that's all right. That's how we roll. Uh, come on up. If you have gone through and you've actually signed membership covenant and gone through that interview, there's actually 38 of you. So, uh, and I think in the bulletin, there's your name. So come on up if you would. All right. So we won't all fit on the stage, but how many people can you fit in a small space? One of the things I wanted to make clear, because I knew it was going to be at least half, if not more than half of uh, people have gone through membership process. Uh, these are not like super Christians and people who haven't gone through the process are somehow less. Uh, we are a, a community and we're committed to loving Jesus and loving one another and loving our culture. Uh, the people that are here today have uh, chosen to go through a pretty intense process because our membership is not just a, a two-hour thing where you can learn about the church and then sign your name on a dotted line. Uh, it's a very involved process of reading a 100-page uh, book uh, coming to five different uh, teachings, or at least watching them uh, online, uh, and then spending time going through uh, membership interviews. So uh, they've already members now of our church, and this morning I just wanted to recognize uh, that these men and women have taken that step uh, to say, uh, I love Jesus and I love the church. Specifically, I'm committed to this community called Genesis. So I wanted to welcome all of you, and uh, if I could, I'd love to pray for you and ultimately just pray for our church. God, you have been so uh, gracious uh, to every single person that is in this room. Uh, God, we are such a, a young church and a new church. Uh, God, you launched us out uh, last September 1st, 2009. And uh, God, it's been amazing to see what you've done in our midst. God, even just watching that video again of the 10 people who got baptized, Lord, it's just 
so encouraging to see you at work in our midst, and we give you thanks. Father, I thank you uh, for the men and women that are standing up here with me that have declared their intention uh, to be members of this church called Genesis. Uh, God, that they have declared their love for you, that they are Christians and committed to uh, living Christ-like. And God, they are committed to loving the church, Jesus, just like you love the church, which means sacrificially serving you and sacrificially serving others. Uh, so God, I pray that you would just bless these men and women as they've gone through a pretty intense process. Uh, God, they've entered into a covenant relationship, and I just pray, God, that you would bless them and help them, uh, God, to fulfill uh, the covenant that they have uh, entered into. Uh, so God, thank you for them. Thank you for raising these men and women up. And God, I just pray a blessing uh, for our church. Uh, God, that you would continue to do great things in our midst, not for us, but for your name and for your fame and for your glory. We give you thanks, and I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, give him a hand. That would be great. If you would, uh, everyone just keep standing. Uh, we'll take a few minutes and say hello to maybe a few people you've not met before, and uh, we'll come back here in a second. You know, whether you've been around for the past year or even longer, or whether you're just new over the past uh, few weeks, few months, it's a pretty exciting time in our church. Uh, we celebrated our year anniversary as a church, uh, uh, Wednesday, September 1st, uh, which was awesome. We did something called uh, Share Your Story uh, about two weeks ago, where we just gave the whole service over to uh, worship and just people sharing testimonies. And I didn't count, but Roughly about uh, 12 to 15 people came up here and just shared testimonies and stories of what God's been doing in their life. And then last week, uh, we had, uh, not well over, but uh, we had a little over 100 people uh, drive about 40 minutes uh, up to Wingersheek Beach uh, just to have a great day uh, celebrating ultimately what God's doing in people's lives and ultimately what God's doing in this community. So, um, And today, we are going to start uh, something uh, brand new, and uh, we are going to be uh, in this place for a long time. Um, pretty nervous uh, for today. Um, I have been uh, thinking about and praying about and dreaming about uh, one day uh, going through uh, the book of Romans. Uh, how many people have ever studied, uh, like in this type of context, a church context, uh, I'm sure many people have probably read the book of Romans, but how many people have ever gone through a series, a sermon series on the book of Romans? Anyone? A few people? All right. Well, it's really interesting. Uh, when you go through Romans, there are some people who have taken 15 years uh, to go through the book of Romans. It's 16 chapters long. Uh, I'm pretty sure we won't take 15 years. Uh, but it's probably going to be a year-long study for us as a church. Uh, so this is really a big deal. I know we typically, if you're familiar with Genesis, uh, we go through books of the Bible. And uh, depending on the length of uh, the book or the letter that we're going through determines how long the series is. But uh, two years ago, we went through uh, the Gospel of Mark, and uh, that took a better part of a year to get through that. Uh, we studied uh, the book of Proverbs this summer, uh, a couple springs back. Uh, we did the book of Genesis, or at least part of the book of Genesis. We've done the book of James. Uh, and it would be my personal goal that at uh, some point we'll have knocked out all 66 books. Uh, and the book that we are starting, it's not even a book, it's a letter. Um, the letter that we are starting today is uh, the letter uh, to the church in Rome. Um, and as we start this series, um, one of the things that I wanted to um, commit to you and ask you to be praying for me about and pray for the other uh, men that would be helping to teach in this series is when I mentioned that I'm nervous about this, um, Romans is a pretty, it's a beautiful book, it's an incredible book, it's challenging, it's inspiring, it's, it's so many things, uh, but it's an intimidating book to teach. And uh, I have a healthy fear, uh, so to speak, of the book of Romans because of the content of Romans. Um, it's just so, so important and so one of the things that I wanted to commit to you today, and I want you to hold me to this, and I would ask that you pray for me in this as well, as, as well as the other men that would be teaching in this series with me, uh, is that I want to work really hard in this series. Uh, I want to read hard, I want to study hard, I want to pray hard, uh, I want to sit with God. Like this is, a, this is a really big deal for our church as we start our second year uh, to be launching into 
this book. And so my commitment, my covenant that I make to you, uh, that is uh, I'm going to work as hard as I possibly can. I don't mean just in the flesh, but really seek the Lord uh, that when we're walking through this book, it will not only transform my life, but it will actually transform your life as well. Um, and the other commitment that I wanted to make to you is I'm going to do the best I can to preach what Roman, Romans preaches. Uh, I don't want to put my slant on it or twist it to preach it in such a way of make it say what I want it to say, uh, which has happened uh, before. Um, uh, not per se here, but you can preach books however you want to preach them to suit whatever you want to, to get going in, in your community. And I want to be absolutely faithful to preach what Romans declares, not preach what I want Romans to declare. Uh, I've shared this quote before from uh, a theologian pastor named R.C. Sproul, and he says this, I am required to believe, to preach, and to teach what the Bible says is true, not what I want the Bible to say is true. So my commitment is to preach and to teach what the Bible says, specifically what we're looking at in Romans, uh, is true, not what I want the Bible to say uh, is true. So those are my commitments to you, uh, to work really hard, study and pray and sit with God, uh, and to, as best as I possibly can, preach as faithfully as I can uh, this letter to the uh, church in Rome. And my question that I wanted to ask of you, we're going to be in this for at least a year. Uh, as best as I can tell, we'll finish up at the end of next summer. We'll take time uh, for Christmas and for Easter Uh, But we're going to be working our way through the letter to the Roman church uh, from now until about uh, September 1st, 2011. Um, Would you do the same? Would you engage the letter to Romans uh, in the same vein of, I will work hard, I will sit with this text, I will study this text, I will read this text. And not only just study and read and learn, but... As this is getting into me, uh, I will submit and surrender to getting it out of me, so to speak. That this is not just a journey that we're going to take so we can be a lot smarter with scriptures, but that we will we'll go for it with Romans. Uh, I like how Martin Luther once said this about Romans. He said, this epistle, which epistle is a fancy word for letter, uh, this epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and is truly the purest gospel. I want you to catch this part. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It is worthy that not only uh, worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart. If anyone likes a challenge, I'll throw down a challenge. Memorize Romans. you got a year to do it. Word for word, tucked in, know it by heart. 16 chapters. I have to believe if some you know, Hollywood actors can memorize entire scripts, certainly I can memorize, you can, we can, put in our minds, in our hearts, word for word, um, by heart, uh, Paul's instruction, Paul's letter uh, to the community in Rome. Luther says that this is the purest gospel. And I wanted to just ask a simple question. Why is Romans the purest gospel? You've got Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. Those are known as the gospels. And then you have really the book of Acts, which tells the story of the first century church and what happened when the gospel literally just began to grow and people were becoming Christians. And then you have the book of Romans. Why does Luther say that Romans is the purest, purest gospel? I've got four thoughts. One is, Romans teaches us how we are to think rightly about God. Theologically. okay? Theology is just the study, knowledge of God, learning how to think rightly about God. And what Romans does for us is it teaches us how to think rightly about God. It teaches us how to think rightly about ourselves. So very, at a very practical level, it walks through theology, it walks through practical, how am I supposed to think about myself physically, emotionally, spiritually? 
mentally. How do I think about myself? How are we to think rightly about the church community and the relationships that we're called to have with one another? So theologically, practically, relationally. And then Romans teaches us how to think rightly about the culture that we live in, what I'll just call missionally. So Romans walks through for us theologically, practically, relationally, and missionally. But it all starts with how we are to think rightly about God. And I will say this, if you, have, if you think wrongly about God, even in a very small, what you would consider a minuscule way, it skews absolutely everything. If we don't think rightly, correctly, biblically, accurately about God, everything else will be skewed. We'll begin to think too little of God and we'll begin to think too highly of ourselves. We'll begin to think very little or too little of the church and too highly of the culture that we live in. So, why now? Okay, we're starting our second years of church. Why, why not go through another gospel or more time in the Old Testament? Why Romans? There's 66 books in the Bible. Why not one of the other 65? So, I think it's a pretty good question. And I'm going to break that answer down of why we as a church are going through the book of Ro- the letter to the, to the Roman church uh, in two answers. One is just practically and one is theologically. Practically speaking, we're going through the book of Romans so that in time, and you might already be here now, but you might not be, in time you would be able to say, I absolutely love the gospel. There's nothing else that I love more than the good news It's coming from God, known as uh, God's gospel or the good news. I hope that in time, much like what the Apostle Paul says, this is Romans 1.16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God uh, for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks, but just I wanted you to catch that phrase. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I hope that as we walk through this together as a community, but as you would engage this just individually, that you would come to a point in time where you could say with conviction and just absolute honesty, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And then secondly, that we would not only have a love for the gospel and not be ashamed of that, but we would have a genuine love for the community, relationally. Meaning when you get the gospel in you, when the good news of God's forgiveness, God's love, God's grace, God's mercy demonstrated to you, when you get that in you, you cannot keep it in you. It, it just starts to flow out of you towards other people. One of the reasons many people have such a hard time in relationship and there's so much division and unforgiveness, whatever it might be, is because we don't have the gospel in us. But when someone loves the gospel, has the gospel in them, It begins to flow from them to other people. And I hope we as a church, practically speaking, would absolutely love the gospel and absolutely love one another. This is what Romans says, uh, chapter 12, verse 9 and 10. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. I just love this love has to be sincere, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. So that we love the gospel, we love one another with the gospel flowing from us. And then thirdly, now if you can put up the picture of our series image. The third one is that we'd learn how to really love the culture that God has placed us in. Does anyone know where this image is from? Gladiator. Praise God for Photoshop. <laughs> little fancy work with some cloud rearrangement and some uh, removal of Russell Crowe's face over the city. <laughs> I'm pretty confident no, no copyright infringement laws were broken. <laughs> but when I came across this image, uh, what I wanted this picture to communicate, because Rome... Uh, was a magnificent place. Uh, Rome was just 
That's where everything was happening. Everything that was happening in Rome would just flow from Rome to the different provinces around. So what happens in Rome would impact everything else. And what I had, in, at least in my mind's eye, was a picture of the cross just planted deep within the arena. And this is what Romans does, is when the gospel began to just permeate Rome, Rome began to change. And what I have in mind for us this year is that we would really begin to believe that the gospel can not only change us, can not only change the relationships we have with one another, but it will transform the culture that we live in. I love this image of the cross just planted right in the middle of the epicenter of culture. And that's where we live. And at least I have in my mind's eye of what would happen with the, just the picture of the cross planted deep within us, planted deep within our community, and planted deep within the city that we live in. I'm excited to see what God will do with you, what God will do with us as a church, and what God will do with us as a church in the culture that we live. That's practically. Why are we doing Romans? For those three reasons. The second reason is the theological thing that I've tapped into a little bit. But theology is the study or understanding of God. I want us as a church to understand God rightly. Because if we just don't understand God rightly, everything else will be off kilter. If you ever wonder why your life sometimes just feels out of control, chaotic, confusing, it's a good chance that it's got to go back to how am I understanding God in the midst of all of this? And when I understand God biblically, theologically, accurately, it's not that everything in my life will be perfect, but I will understand how to operate in my life with the correct view of who God is. So practically, that's why we're going through Romans, and theologically, that's why we are going through Romans. One of the things I love that Romans will do, have you ever had a conversation with someone and you're trying to explain to them what you believe and, and it's not making any sense and they just keep coming back at you with like the five-year-old question of, but why? Well, I, I'm trying to explain it to you. Well, but you're not doing a good job. So, but, but why? What I love about what Romans will do for us is it, not, will, it will not only explain what we believe, will not only explain how we're to think about God, how we're to think about ourselves, how we're to think about the church, how we're to think about culture, but it goes from just explaining the what we're to believe to why we believe those things. It is a beautiful thing when you're having a conversation with someone and they're hitting you again and again with the why and you're able to answer them with the why. And you see the light begin to, to click on or turn on in their heart, in their mind. And this is not so we can win conversations and be like, aha, you were wrong, I was right, I win. It's an amazing thing when you can explain the why of the what. Most of us lack the why. We can give, do the what, but we lack the why. And Romans specifically, what human beings are really like and why we are this way. Romans will explain that. Romans will explain what humans, being, humans need more than anything else, our greatest need and why that is our greatest need. And Romans will explain what God has done to meet man's greatest need and why he did it. The point of Romans is not so we become these great Bible thumpers and can win Bible jeopardy and impress people with our great knowledge and wisdom. The point of Romans, practically and theologically, is that your life would look different. Is that you would experience a transformation a total transformation, heart, mind, soul, everything, all of you transform because you're thinking rightly about God, you're thinking rightly about yourself, you're thinking rightly about the relationships you have with people, and you're thinking rightly about the culture you live in. And it all starts with thinking rightly about God. Revel or not Revelation. That will be a great book when we go through Revelation one day. Romans chapter 12. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. 
as we go through, Romans is really broken down into two different sections, 1 through 11, which walks through theologically, thinking rightly about God. And then chapter 12, verse 1, starts with this great word, therefore, meaning in light of everything he just wrote, this is how practically it should be played out and lived out in your life. So practically, because of all that you know now of God and why, there leads to a transformation of who you are with God, with yourself, with relationships, and with culture. But it's not just going to happen magically. Meaning, there will come a point in time where you have to own yourself. You have to own your relationship with God. Your relationship with God can't be lived out through someone else. Or it can't be lived out through some great book that you just picked up, whether on Amazon or a Christian bookstore. You have to own your relationship with God. Where you can, I I know sometimes there's the thought of, I really want to grow in my relationship with God, and I want to be tighter, and I want to know His voice better, and and I want to do all of these things, but we never really do anything. We expect it to either be done for us, or we just hope that magically it happens. came across uh, a quote from uh, D.L. Moody, and he said this, I prayed for faith and thought... I prayed for faith and thought that someday faith would come down and strike me like lightning, but faith did not seem to come. One day I read in the 10th chapter of Romans, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I had up to this time closed my Bible and prayed for faith. I now opened my Bible and began to study and faith has been growing ever since. There are people who wish They will grow in their faith, their relationship with God. They'll grow in a healthy biblical view of themselves with other people and with culture. And then there's people who really press in and they study. They engage the text and allow the text to engage them. And they work hard. And I like how D.L. Moody finished by just saying, I've now opened my Bible and I've began to study and faith has been growing ever since. This morning, um, in just uh, probably about the next 20 minutes, uh, what I would like to do is give you a pretty broad overview of the book of Romans. Um, We're going to literally walk through uh, section by section, chapter by chapter, verse by verse uh, through Romans. But I thought it would be helpful for today's purpose. This is going to be a long journey, so I'm going to have lots of commentary as we go uh, this year but I thought it would be hopefully helpful and beneficial to give you a a big picture. Uh, The message title today was Welcome to Rome. I wanted to paint not just a picture of what Rome looked like, um, but the letter itself. So if you have a pen, we're doing something today we've never done, by the way. Uh, we, We made church bulletins. I feel like we've matured somehow as a church, and now we have a bulletin and we're legitimized somehow. Um, But... In there, there's a space for you to write down some of these dates, okay? Uh, important dates. First important date for you to remember, 49 AD, okay? Emperor Claudius was running the show in Rome, and Emperor Claudius uh, was not a big fan of uh, the Jews, uh, whether it's just Jews in general or Jewish Christians, uh, meaning Jews who had converted to uh, follow Jesus, And so Claudius kicked out all of the Jews from Rome. Up until this point in time, uh, about 15 years or so, uh, the church in Rome was slowly starting to grow. And it was comprised completely of uh, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. There was a mix of both. Predominantly Jewish, but there was a good mix of Gentile Christians, meaning people who aren't Jewish. In 49 AD, Claudius did not like what was going on with the Jews. And he had the power and authority, and so he kicked them all out. Overnight, literally, the church in Rome went from a predominantly Jewish Christian church to a church that was now predominantly, absolutely all Gentile Christians. 49 AD. Okay? In 54 AD, Emperor Claudius, he dies. And... With him and his death, so, does, so dies with him the decree for uh, Jews to be kicked out, exiled out of Rome. And so when he dies, 
uh, a nice young fellow by the name of Nero. Um, say that tongue-in-cheek if you're familiar with Nero. Um, was the most brutal emperor uh, towards Christians at the end of his life. 54 AD, uh, Claudius dies, Nero takes power, and the Jews begin to come back into Rome. And they come back after about roughly five, six years of being away, and now their church has been completely taken over by Gentile Christians. And it looks nothing like how they left it. Some of the Jewish ways, Jewish traditions, Jewish thoughts of understanding Old Testament, understanding the Messiah, things have been changed. So in 54 AD, bless you, Jews come back and find a church that does not look like how they left it. It would be like if all of you were kicked out today, for whatever reason, you were just kicked out, and then six, five, six years from now, you were invited to come back. And you came back, and you were like, wait a minute, this is not Genesis, this is not how we do things, and this is not what it's supposed to look like, and why are you doing that? And you're not supposed to stand, you're supposed to sit on a chair, get your butt on a chair. Like, we would have all these weird things of, like, that's just not how we do it. It's the old school and the new school colliding, and those two schools rarely get along. This is what happened in 54 AD. 57 AD. We've got 49, we've got 54, and now your third date is 57 AD. This is when Paul pens the letter to the Roman church. One of the themes that's going to play out in the, Roman, uh, the letter to the Romans is the dynamic and the relationship that Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians are to have with one another. That's why you're going to see so many themes of Old Testament and Judaism and how they understand the Messiah in the first 11 chapters. And then chapter 12 through 16 is how Gentiles and Jewish Christians are supposed to relate with one another. Uh, if you're not uh, familiar with the Apostle Paul, uh, you can read about his conversion. This guy was bent on destroying the church, but then he became the greatest champion of the church. And in, in Acts chapter 9, it tells his story of he had an encounter with a Jesus who was alive. And he, Paul knew Jesus to be dead, but he encountered a Jesus who was alive, and it changed his life. When Paul writes in 57 AD, he's already finished his third missionary journey. Paul is now hanging out in the city of Corinth. It's the winter time, and he is writing now in 57 AD the letter to the Roman church. This is Paul wrote 13 letters. This is his fifth letter that he wrote. Uh, that he wrote. His first one was First and Second Thessalonians, followed by First and Second Corinthians, followed by Galatians. Then Romans was next. Now, when he writes to Rome, there's roughly over a million people in the city of Rome. How many people have ever been to like um, a really fancy vacation spot, say like on the Caribbean? Um, I've been to, Kyla's parents were always gracious uh, to take us to some pretty crazy nice places we'd never be able to go to on our own. We got to go to like the Cayman Islands and a couple other places. And I would always go to these places and it looks like the postcard. The beach and the hotels are just fabulous. They're glorious. They're amazing. But if you just peek around the corner of the hotel, slums. If you've ever experienced, whether you've been to any place really in the Caribbean, uh, it's driven obviously by tourism, but literally behind the beauty of it all is the homelessness of it all, the poverty of it all. And these are the places we go on vacation. Rome looked much like that. It looked very pretty, but over 500,000 people of the million were uh, bond servants or slaves. If you were of the elite, meaning if you had cash, if you had money, it went well for you, but that was about 1% of the population of Rome. So most of Rome was slums. It was poverty. And so most of the Roman government was trying to keep the masses under control because there was no food, there was no sanitation, there was no protection. And they were always on this fear of the people could revolt at any second. That's what first century Rome looked like in around 50 A.D., so this is when Paul writes in 57 AD, this is what it looks like. 64 AD, this is your next big date. 49, 54, 57, and 64. Nero goes mad. 
Nero, who is the emperor, like loses it. And he starts persecuting Christians uh, in the most intense, sick ways imaginable. Letting the animals and the gladiators have their way with them in the arena. And it was a spectacle and it was a sport. So much so that Roman historians write down that Rome began to pity the Christians because of how they were abused. If you think some of the horror movies now, like the Saws and some of those sick movies, are disturbing, you would be disturbed to to read the written reports of what Nero and his leaders were doing to Christians. And so in 64 AD, an intense persecution broke out because Nero lost his mind and just hated Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians and started persecuting them all. But the Roman church had the letter to them, written by Paul, in their hands. And much of what Romans will encourage them to do is to stand strong, to be faithful. They know who God is. They know Him theologically. They're thinking about God rightly. And so no matter what their circumstance situation looks like, persecution, they can walk through that persecution well. Why? Because they're thinking rightly about God. That God is sovereign. God's in control. God's not abandoned us. God's not left us. If you think rightly about God, it does not matter what situation, no matter how horrific it is, you will be able to walk through that situation well. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's easy. But you will be able to stand firm, stand well, stand strong, and walk with God. 49, 54, 57, 64. Fast forward now about 300 some odd years. The year is now 386 AD. A man named Aurelius. Not Maximus, Aurelius, whatever. 386 AD. There was a a young man, probably in his mid to to late 20s. He was the son of a man who absolutely rejected God and rejected all things related to God, was known as a pagan. But this man, Aurelius, had a mother who was a Christian, and she was relentless in praying for her son. That one day, this son who was absolutely immoral, and the choices, decisions he was making represented that, one day this son of hers would come to know Jesus as she had. And so one day as Aurelius is walking through the garden, uh, and in this specific garden there happened to be on a lectern a chained uh, a Bible that was chained to the lectern. And in the distance Aurelius hears these kids playing in the background. And he begins to hear these kids, it was apparently a famous song, or a children's song that went with the child's game uh, in Latin, and probably mess up the pronunciation, but tole lege, tole lege. And he kept hearing this again and again and again in his head. And what those words, tole lege, means is take up and read. I can't figure out for the life of me what childhood game would have take up and read in it, but it's first century. And so he's got this going on in his head as he's walking in the garden. And he comes across the New Testament. And this pagan, absolutely immoral man hears this and he says, maybe I should take up and read. And he does one of those things where he just flipped open the Bible and the very first thing he sees is this. Romans chapter 13. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is near now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, and the day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Verse 14, Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Can you imagine if you were living this crazy, crazy, immoral lifestyle and the very first thing you pick up and didn't pick up, it was chained down, but you flipped open and that's what you read? Either that's just a crazy coincidence or either God's really trying to get your attention. And in that moment in the garden, that man was cut to the heart by those scripture verses. Rather, clothe yourself with Jesus, and don't think about how to gratify the desires of that sinful nature. He converts to Christianity, and history remembers Aurelius as one of the greatest theologians 
St. Augustine. Read Romans 13, 11 through 14, and those few verses in the book, in the letter of Romans, just cut him to the heart. Fast forward now about 11, 1200 years. Your next date, 1515 AD. You guys track with me? I know this might feel like a bit history class, but love it. 1515 AD. A man who had struggled his entire life with trying to please God. Anyone ever done that? You want to please God, and so you work really hard. And you, you are living in such a way where you just keep thinking, if I do this and I, I perform here and I, I work here, that somehow God will be pleased with me. Like somehow God will love me more if I do A, B, and C, X, Y, and Z. And if you've ever been down that road of what I'll just call a performance-driven faith, it's a faith that leads to utter despair. And this man had great despair and great depression until he was a professor, until he began to uh, prepare for a series of lectures that he was going to be doing on the book of Romans. And in his book, on his preparation, he came across Romans chapter 1, verse 17. It says this, For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith, from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. A message that had been lost through the last century, or many centuries actually, this one verse, does anyone know who I'm thinking about? Martin Luther was cut to the heart by Romans chapter 1, verse 17. And a man who had lived a performance-driven, work-driven, based faith was cut to the heart and came to the conclusion of what Scripture teaches in that passage, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That was in 1515 A.D., it was Martin Luther's study of Rome, that, of the letter to the Romans, that led to what we now know as the Great Reformation, where he stood against a world that proclaimed it's a works-based, a performance-based faith. And he said, no, justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Fast forward 200 some odd years, 1738. Now I'm talking about a man who was ordained as an Anglican minister in the Church of England. And as he was listening to another man preach, would you know it, the book of the letter of Romans. I keep getting it mixed in my head. This is not a book we're studying. This is a letter, uh, which is very important to understand. Paul didn't write a systematic theology book. He wrote a letter uh, to a community of people in Rome. So as this Anglican minister is listening to another man preach from the book of the letter of Romans, sorry. He said this later in one of his journals. He felt that his heart was strangely warmed as he was listening the letter of Romans preached. And later, John Wesley, who was a phenomenal uh, man who part of Great Awakenings and just revivals, would record at that moment when his ears heard Romans proclaimed and preached is when his conversion to Jesus Uh, took place. Fast forward, say 200 years. A pretty young girl, about the age of uh, 20-ish, very good-looking girl, who happened to be attending the Ohio State University. I mean, she was beautiful. If you would have seen her, she was awesome. And for the record, still is was sitting in a Wendy's uh, (laughs) restaurant and um, uh, a friend was explaining to her uh, the gospel. And uh, this nameless, uh, pretty young lady (laughs) had quasi been around the church and maybe had heard verses read here and there, like a Christmas Easter type of thing, but really had never set her eyes on a Bible verse before. And uh, the very first Bible verse that this pretty young girl remembers reading is 
would you know it, from the book, you have to be gracious to me, from the letter to the Romans. And it's Romans chapter 3, verse 23, where it just said, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in that moment, there was a conversion of heart that just said, wow, I get it. I'm a sinner. Uh, which the obvious next question is, what does a sinner do? Like, how does a sinner find salvation? And would you know it, the very next verse that she read was in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, which just says, for the wages of sin is death, meaning separation from God. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Those are the first two verses that she read. That was on October 30th, 1992. I've taken the time to walk through a lot of history um, because I'm hopefully painting as best as I can a picture for you of how God has so significantly used this letter to the Romans uh, to challenge and shape and reshape people through history. John Calvin uh, who was greatly impacted by Paul's letter to the church in Rome, said this, if we, if we gained a true understanding of this epistle, we have an open door to all the most profound treasures of Scripture. By no means am I saying that Romans is the best book of all the Bible, and that's like where God really speaks is in Romans. I'm not saying that, but I am saying that God has uniquely used Romans to shape and reshape, to transform, to rescue, to redeem, to reconcile, to convert people into a right relationship with God. And as you sit here today, I have no idea where your heart is with God, and I have no idea how your mind even thinks about God. But my heart for you on September 26th, would be that this might be a day that's a new day for you. It's a new day for you and your relationship with God, a new day for you and your relationship with yourself and how you see and understand yourself, new day for how you understand the relationships that you have with people in this place, and a new day for how you understand how we are to relate with the culture that God has planted us in. Paul is the author of Romans. Okay, that's not really debated anywhere. Uh, Paul, again, if you're not familiar, uh, very just powerful story of a man's conversion uh, after trying to kill the church to being the champion of the church. Uh, his story, you can read it uh, really through Acts 9 on, so I'd encourage you to take some time uh, to do that. But um, this is a, a pretty intense letter that's Paul's most significant letter of his 13. Uh, just to give you a picture, I guess, maybe historically, uh, Cicero, who was you know, pretty uh, uh, prolific writer uh, in ancient times, had written uh, how many? 796 letters. The average length of a letter was roughly 295 words. Okay, It's like a really long email. Seneca... Another ancient writer had, we have at least of his works, uh, 124 letters. They averaged a little bit more lengthy email at uh, roughly about 995 words. Paul, uh, who's known as a very prolific writer, we only have 13 of his letters, which is not much. But Paul's average length of his letter is 1,300 words. That's a pretty intense email. Romans, anyone want to take a stab how long Romans is? There might be a Chipotle gift card in it for you if you guess right. <laughs> Do I hear one million? 7,100 words. I did not double check my math this morning when I woke up, but 7,000 plus words in this one letter. I just give you that information to let you know, uh, even to Paul, this is a really weighty letter, more so than any other of his 13 letters. Uh, and I'm going to go through this incredibly quick, uh, but I wanted, if we're going to understand Romans well, we have to understand the man who wrote the letter to Rome. And very clearly, God led 
by his spirit, uh, Paul to write this letter. This is not a man-made letter. This is a God-centered letter, a God-spirit-led written letter. And, but it's helpful to understand the man behind the letter. And I'll give you very quickly three things about the Apostle Paul that hopefully will be very helpful and even memorable. Uh, and number one is this. Paul was a man who was not ashamed of the one who gave it all so that he could have it all. I love that about Paul. He was not ashamed of the God who gave him absolutely everything when he deserved nothing. Meaning, another way to say it is, this man was absolutely wrecked by the gospel and absolutely loved Jesus. I've already read Romans 1.16. I'll read it one more time. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. How do you come to a point in time where you, you have a conclusion that I'm not ashamed of this? Think of the things that in your life that you're not ashamed of. And you'd have to, I think, agree that the things in our life that we're not ashamed of are the things that we're convinced of. That makes sense? I often hear, well, you know, I'm ashamed to tell people of the gospel and who God is and what God's done and who Jesus is. And I'm just ashamed of those things because I'm just scared of what people are going to think of me or, you know, I might get persecuted. I might, you know, whatever it might be. No. What we are absolutely convinced of, we are not ashamed of. I don't care what you say, Ohio State is the best college football team today, tomorrow, for eternity. They might go 0-14, but I am convinced that they are the greatest team, and I will stand by that. Why? Because I am convinced of that truth. You think I'm crazy? Some people would argue other teams, and that's fine. They're wrong. There's eternal consequences for them. When you are convinced of something, then you enter into the arena that you are not ashamed of it. And I wonder today... Are you convinced that there is nothing better than the gospel? Are you convinced that God's forgiveness, God's mercy, God's grace, God's love, all demonstrated through Christ, there is nothing better than the good news coming from God in the gospel of Jesus? If you're convinced of that, then no matter what people are going to say or what's going to happen to you, you won't be ashamed of it because you're convinced of it. Paul was a man who was absolutely not ashamed of the one who gave it all so he could have it all because he was convinced of one thing, that Jesus Christ was alive. He was convinced of that. Number two, he was not only convinced of the gospel, but Paul was a man who would lose it all so that others could have it all. He was so convinced of the gospel, it had so just gotten in him, that what happened to Paul is, it didn't matter. He would rather lose it all so that someone else could have it all. This is one of the most challenging passages in Romans to me personally. Romans chapter 9, a few verses, 1 through 4. This is Paul. It says this, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. Verse 2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. There's something going on in Paul's heart. Unceasing anguish in my heart. Verse 3, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race. I would rather be cursed of God and cut off from God if it meant one of my brothers would come to know Jesus. You can't say that unless you're firmly convinced that there's nothing greater, nothing better than the gospel. Something happened to Paul that he not only loved God, loved Jesus, but he began to love people in such profound ways, cursed of God, cut off from God, if just someone would come, one of my brothers would come to know God. I want you to think of someone in your life right now that's a loved one to you. Could be a, a, a friend, a family, brother, sister, husband, wife, someone that is just, you consider them 
a genuine loved one. And I want you to think of now them and their face, but ask, answer this question of, what do you think would be the most loving thing that you could do for that person right now? Whoever that face is that you've got swimming in your mind, what's the most loving thing that you could do for that person? I know without a shadow of a doubt, Paul would absolutely say, I, I tell them about Jesus. I would make sure that they know Jesus. I would make sure that they're walking with Jesus. I'd make sure that I'm encouraging them, helping them. The most loving thing that we could ever do for someone is to introduce them to Jesus. You can paint whatever scenario you want. I will always hang my hat on that. The most loving thing I can do for someone is to introduce them to Jesus. They have to make a decision, obviously. But the most loving thing I can do is not necessarily just to give a meal, not necessarily to help them in this situation. Those are good. Those are loving things. Do those. But not vacant or void of introducing, proclaiming, telling, modeling, living out Jesus for them. Last one. I'll leave with this. Paul was a man who was not ashamed of the one who gave it all so he could have it all. Paul was a man who would lose all of it so that others could have it. And the last one I'll give you is this. Paul was a man who lived with a God-honoring, Christ-centered ambition. How many ambitious people do you know? You might consider yourself and like, I'm an ambitious person. But how many ambitious people do you know? Because misguided, self-directed, self-serving ambition is usually, if not always, incredibly destructive. The person usually gets hurt and the people around them usually get destroyed. This is what Paul says in Romans 15, 20. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that uh, I would not be building on someone else's foundation. I want you to fill in the blank here. Okay, the fill in the blank is, finish this following sentence. It has always been my ambition to... What's your fill in the blank? Write it down. Get it in your head. It has always been my ambition to... To what? Paul had a God-honoring, Christ-centered ambition. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel. Specifically, where no one else has done it before. Why? He mentions because he doesn't want to build on someone else's foundation, but he wants to go where people have no idea who Jesus is, have no idea who the, what the gospel is, have no idea about grace and forgiveness and eternity in heaven. Is what you put in your fill-in-the-blank, is it God-honoring, and is it Christ-centered? We all have ambition. You might not consider yourself the most ambitious person in the world, but we all have ambition to different levels. I get that. But is what you are ambitious about, is it really honestly being, is it worth being ambitious about that? Because if it's not God-honoring and Christ-centered, I'm not sure it's a worthy ambition to give all of you to all of that. So, is what you are ambitious about God-honoring and Christ-centered? Paul was a very, very ambitious person. I think not too many people would disagree with that, but his ambition flowed from what he was convinced of. His ambition was so closely married to, tied to, united to what he was convinced of, and he was convinced of the gospel. And because he was convinced of the gospel and had this ambition, one of the things that I love about, if you're really a God-honoring, Christ-centered, ambitious person, you won't quit. You won't tap out. Like when it gets hard, you just, you don't give up. If you were to read in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, specifically verse 23 through 28, Paul lists all of the stuff that just had happened to him. He'd been beaten. He had been stoned. He had been shipwrecked. He'd been left for dead numerous occasions. He didn't quit. 
Do you know that Romans was written 25 years after Paul was converted? He had 25 years of incredibly rough ministry where he had taken his beatings, he had taken his hits. This was a broken and busted man. But 25 years into it, he's still going strong. You never quit, you never tap out. Now, I'll wrap up with this. Can you imagine what state of mind you would be in after 25 years of literally, you know, being your hands so wrecked you couldn't even write your own letter because your your hands were so bent? How many times that he had been lashed and whipped to the point where he didn't even have skin on his back? It was all just scar tissue. After 25 years of going through the abuse of it all, he writes Romans. Absolutely phenomenal. You might be in a season right now where you're just in the thick of it. You are in the time of your life right now where the waves don't just keep coming, but they actually are just getting bigger and bigger and bigger as they go. And you're just lost in this place of when will this ever end? My encouragement to you right now is to do what Paul did. He writes this letter from Corinth at the end of his third missionary journey. He's camping out in the city of Corinth for the winter, and the winter would be anywhere from three to six months. He took a time out where he rested and he reflected. That's when Romans was was written. In a time where he wasn't necessarily planting churches, he'd finish his missionary journey, which was east of the Mediterranean. He rested, he stopped. And this is where this great letter of Romans comes from, is when the man stopped and he reflected on all that God had done. All of who God is shows up in Romans. Too many people, when they get to the point of wanting to tap or quit, they just, they, they're done. My charge to you, if, if you are there today, right now, the message is not suck it up, okay? I'm not saying that. That's terrible advice. My message to you is not suck it up. It is to rest and to reflect. You have to have the two together. There are too many people who just rest and check out. That will lead you to further despair. But if you rest and reflect on who God is and think rightly about God, God will infuse in you and refresh you so that you will be at some point in time ready to get back out. Paul rested and he reflected and from that, Romans is written. Some of you though, you don't need necessarily rest because you've been out of it for a long time. An ambitious person knows when to rest and reflect, but an ambitious person also realizes when it's time to get back out there. Paul did not live the rest of his life in Corinth. Do you know why he was resting and reflecting? He wrote Romans, but do you know where he was going next? He was going to Spain. Some of you need to get out of a season of rest and head to Spain. This is what Paul says in Romans 15. But now that there's no more place for me to work in these regions, meaning I planted all of these churches, and since I've been longing for many years to see you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I've got to get from Corinth. I've got to pass by Rome, but I'm not coming to Rome to live. I'm going to Spain because the gospel's not there. He didn't live at the rest stop. He rested, he reflected on who God is and what God had done, but then he got himself back out on mission. The gospel was already bearing fruit in Rome. I don't need to go there, but Spain, west of you, that's where I'm going. And I want you, and he goes on in Romans 15, to support this great missionary work because the gospel is going to be unleashed now in Spain. East of the Mediterranean, God's doing great things. West of the Mediterranean, no one's there yet, but I'm going. I don't know where you are today, but you do. If it's in a time where you're just getting it kicked out of you right now, then just stop and rest. Allow someone else to come alongside you and love you and encourage you, but do the hard work of reflecting, not on you, but reflecting on God. 
Because if you don't do that, you won't get back out there. Some of you need to stop resting and head west. Go to Spain. Get back on mission. I am excited, I hope you can tell, to walk through Romans. I think God's going to do some good stuff in me. I think God's going to do some good stuff in you. I think God's going to do some phenomenal stuff in this community. We're going to celebrate communion. And if you're a Christian, I want you to rest right now and reflect on who God is and what God has done. Reflect before you come up and take a piece of bread and dip it in the wine or juice. Reflect on all that God has done for you. His love expressed to you, demonstrated to you, His mercy, His forgiveness, His unending grace. And when you come, come with a smile slash tear of God, thank you for doing that for me. And if you're not a Christian, make a decision to become a Christian today. Romans chapter 10, uh, verse 9 says this. This is a a great, very simple verse. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Salvation is right here. If you're not a Christian, confess that you're a sinner who sins and is in need of a Savior, and God has, in the good news of the gospel, provided a Savior for you. If you've never confessed that today, Confess it today and then come celebrate communion by giving thanks to God for what Jesus has done for you. Father God, I give you thanks for the good news and the gospel. That you are a God who's been gracious to every man and every woman, every child that is in this place today. God, we do not deserve your grace. We do not deserve the gospel. We do not deserve your son Jesus but in a great demonstration of your love towards humanity, towards each of us, you sent your Son to live a perfect life who was without sin, to die a very brutal, bloody, painful, humiliating death on a cross. That those who would cast their eyes to your Son Jesus and confess Him as Lord, as God, as Savior, would be saved. God, as we begin this journey, please bless it. God, transform me. Transform every single person in this room. Transform this church. God, and transform this culture that we live in. That the norm would now be people making much of Jesus. And you can do that, and we ask that you would in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for coming today. Um, I know I gave you a bunch of dates to remember, but uh, one more. Uh, Remember today, uh, September 26, 2010. I pray that uh, today would be a new day. Um, It's not only when we start uh, a journey through a pretty exciting book uh, called Romans, uh, but I hope it will be a new day of you walking with God rightly, thinking of yourself rightly, living in relationship rightly, and engaging culture rightly. So, Remember today, September 26, 2010. Uh, on your way out, if uh, you've not signed up for Life Group and would like to do so, we've got some laptops back there. You can do it before you leave. And i um, excited for this journey that uh, we've just started today and uh, looking forward to it. So God bless. Have a great week. Peace out.